Today, we're talking with a special guest, Dr. Maggie Savin-Baden, who is a professor of education at Worcester University and a prolific writer, authoring 21 books and over 60 peer-reviewed journals. Her book, titled Virtual Humans, Today and Tomorrow, explores the technical approaches to creating virtual humans. She is also an expert in the rapidly expanding field of the digital afterlife and has a book entitled Digital Afterlife, Death Matters in a Digital Age. It is a fascinating read about the many varieties and dilemmas we're bound to encounter in the future. We're extremely lucky to be able to pick her brain today on these topics. Dr. Savin Baden, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. So before we dive in, and we're very excited to dive in, first tell us how you've gotten interested in virtual reality and digital mortality. It seems like a very niche area that most people really don't know about, myself included. I think it started in about 2008, when I first started getting into um, exploring the use of virtual worlds then, like Second Life and more recently like Unity 3D for learning in higher education. I'm a really a higher education researcher um, who's kind of stumbled across some interesting areas. And I think all through my career, I've always been at sites of innovation because, as my husband says, I'm always getting bored and I'm always wanting to do new things. So it started back then, and uh, I gained some really surprising but good funding to look into that, both in medical education and then later in higher education. And so it started with virtual worlds and moved on from there. That's very neat. So let's start off on a light topic compared to digital immortality. Let's start off talking about virtual reality. And I remember five to 10 years ago, and to some extent now, we always talk about technology overuse and how it affects socialization and sleep. And I feel once virtual reality becomes commonplace, we've reached a new level in our relationship with it. In this post-digital age, as you talk about in your book, we're no longer going to be talking about how it impacts our health because it's like so commonplace, like the air we breathe. We're so enmeshed in it. And so what do you, how do you feel about spending a significant amount of time in a virtual environment and how that affects our health? And do you have any recommendations about that? Um, you know, as an addictionologist, we talk about how people can be addicted to various things. And I think we almost have to start to redefine addiction to technology now because it is so commonplace. I think one of the important things I'd like to start by pointing out here, which I'm sure you already know, and, and many of you watch as well as well, but it, it's important to make the distinction between virtual worlds and virtual humans and virtual reality. Because you can be in a virtual world can, which can feel really immersive. Um, and some people talk about that as if it is reality, so it feels really real. And then you could go, go back to the original Matrix when, you know, the question is, what is real? You know, I'm in a computer program, what is real? And, um, you know, or things in lots of these films like, is this my imagination? Well, of course it's your imagination. What else it would be, whether it's Harry Potter or some of the other sci-fi films. So I think um, there is a kind of collapsing of virtual reality and virtual worlds in the sense of Im the idea of immersion. And there were quite a lot of discussions, certainly in the late, about 2010, about people getting addicted to using virtual worlds. That seems to have disappeared a bit, but the focus is more on getting immersed in games, which is another form of virtual reality but he's also crosses over virtual reality and virtual worlds. So particularly the shoot em up games and some of the other games that people get addicted to. So I think there's that. And then of course, there's the virtual reality itself, 
which is still very much about putting your virtual reality goggles on. I've just finished a piece of work for the Ministry of Defence in the UK, which was actually creating pedagogies for virtual world to try and enable them to use them better. Um, and that's the subject of a talk that I'll be giving in Montreal in January. Um, but I think a lot of the time, a bit like digital immortals and digital afterlife, a lot of the time it's not often as much developed as the media imply. Um, and virtual virtual reality, I still think, is very much, unless you're in a virtual environment, sorry, a virtual reality space, a physical space, you know, one of these purpose-built virtual reality buildings, which are probably more like simulations than virtual reality, you're still talking about putting on, you know, your goggles to get into virtual reality. And not everybody's got that and not everybody's bothered about that and makes some people feel quite sick. Mark Zuckerberg recently said that um, we're a technology company that helps people connect and we want to build a platform that builds a sense of presence where you're there with somebody. And it's almost like he's taking the Achilles heel of technology where people mainly criticize it for a lack of presence. Your phones are out at the dinner table and he's flipping it on its head and making it a strength. I think in some aspects, that's a that's an interesting take on it because that's that's where we're heading anyway what do you what do you think about that and the whether or not it does take away people from being present or it adds to being present with other people um the classic one is as you say the the phones at the dinner table um i don't know what rule you're going to have for your young young child uh, but we've we've had a rule for many years in our family that we don't have phones at the dinner table um and I, I think what Zuckerberg is really talking about is absence and presence, which goes back to Derrida's work. And I think it's about 1984 about absence and presence. And I think there are different iterations of that. And that's what people need to be looking at. You know, is it absent absence or is it present absence? And, you know, you can see um, absent absence when you, people are standing in front of a grave talking to their loved ones who's clearly not there, although they're under their feet. Um, at the same time, people talk to their loved ones in virtual graveyards. So um, there's different ways of, of looking at it. I don't know that having your phone at dinner is terribly helpful. Um, and I do think it, it is a distraction. I mean, to the extent that um, I have young people in my home and if I'm on my phone and my daughter's trying to have a conversation with me, she says in a very pointed way, are you listening to me, mum? Um, so I put my phone down, turn it over and say, yes, I'm here, because it is that sense of um, absent presence. You know, I'm not here listening properly to what she's saying to me because I'm actually talking to somebody else. Totally agree. I, I feel like maybe there's a, a time and a place for this absent presence and there's a time and a place for putting down technology and just having that face to face interaction. And we need to figure out what is the most appropriate time and place so we can use it to our advantage as much as possible. Because that's what we're all about. Since this is a psychiatry show, I want to kind of get your take on what people, especially clinicians, how they approach virtual reality care and psychiatry. I don't know about in the UK, but it really hasn't taken off very much, even though there's growing amount of data to show that it can be helpful for the treatment of social anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, why do you feel that it hasn't really become mainstream like virtual care has? Because this has been something that scratches, I scratch my head over trying to figure out. I mean, are you referring to virtual reality in terms of immersion with headphones? 
um, and um, and goggles. Is that kind of the VR that you're talking about? Yep, doing exposure response prevention with a VR machine where they can they can simulate a, a flight taking off or being in a in a audience or <clears throat> some other sort of confining environment where they can change that in real time and then work through the situation. It just seems like a a very beneficial way of treating these disorders, but really nobody does it. And I don't know of anybody. I have to actually search the internet to find somebody. I don't know anyone personally or professionally who does this kind of treatment. I completely agree. I mean, I'm not aware of it. I think the only um, evidence that I've seen is the use of people um, doing that in virtual worlds, not in virtual reality. So there's quite a lot of uh, small research groups or mental health groups in virtual worlds um, that support one another. But I think certainly in the UK, with the state of our health service, you know, it wouldn't even occur to people to use virtual reality because they would say, well, the kit's too expensive and it's too difficult. Um, and there's, I think there's still very much a medical model of mental health in the UK. It's about fixing people and giving them pills. Um, you know, unless you're a sort of innovative occupational therapist who works in private health care, I don't think there's any hope of using that kind of tech. Right. I think um, the insurance companies and the laws kind of pave the way as to wh whether or not it's first accepted, because then the clinicians can adapt it more easily. Yeah, that may be the case in, in, in the US. But I, I mean, here, it, it's, it's about funding. Um, and so if you want to join a mental health support group in a virtual world, you, you, you can do that. Um, but the, there isn't a setup really to use VR. I mean, certainly the work that I've done with the MOD, um, there's been quite a lot of work there. For you know, Obviously, you've talked about flight simulation and training. There's a lot of VR in the military, but it's not used in health over here. Yeah, actually, back in 2007, I was involved in a VR study where they were trying to use it for astronauts. I was working at Johnson Space Center in Houston. Mm -hmm. They wanted to reduce the amount of nausea that they feel and that really debilitates them in the first few days of spaceflight. So to get them more adapted to zero gravity and, and be able to um, adapt to that more quickly could give them make them more productive. So that was a pretty interesting application of it more and more in the government space rather than in the clinical space. Just want to round out this topic on virtual care, virtual reality in general, and talk about it more broadly as to what it means for our society. We become so dependent on technology in so many respects. And then when it fails in some way or another, which is inevitable, it just leads to mass calamity with if there's a virus, if their internet goes down, people can't get on the train, you can't do the most basic functioning in human life. Do you think that we're becoming too reliant on it? And do you foresee some something like a, a an issue on a massive global scale, like a COVID, but for technology? I think I think it could happen. I, I mean, again, I've laughed often when the internet goes down in the university, and suddenly you find people coming out of their offices and talking to each other. Who, you know, <laughs> this is what it used to be like. You know, we used to talk to each other um, instead of saying mm -hmm. emailing somebody in the next office. Um, you'd actually go and knock on the door. So I think so, but I think it 
it depends. I work uh, with a group of theologians and we have these meetings uh, every six weeks at Trinity College in Oxford. And we have these debates about how much technology is taking over our, our lives. And I guess one of the big things I always say, is, but, but it's a question of choice. You know, I, I, you hear this all over the media in films. I don't have a choice. Well, actually, we do have mm -hmm. a choice. And I think right. we need to bring choice back in to mental health, into um, family life we need to emphasize that cho choice is there you know you choose whether you turn the television on you choose whether you turn the computer on you choose whether you answer your emails first thing in the morning or whether you like I do generally don't answer them till four o'clock in the afternoon so I can actually get some work done you know so I think there is some issue around choice for me um, and I think you can choose whether you give your child an iPad um, I mean I've seen children in supermarkets with a newspaper in front of them um, trying to get the pictures to move, as you would on an iPad, and they're you know they're in a pushchair, and I think it's a little bit worrying <laughs> that that's that expectation yep. is there. It reminds me when a comedian was making fun of how we have such drastic um, complaints about air travel, and he's like, just think about this: you're flying 600 miles an hour, 30,000 feet in the sky. Can't you just appreciate that for once? And so I. I do like how you remind us all that these are things that overall are making our lives so much better. And if there's a little bit of drawback once in a while, an inconvenience because you have to go out and talk to somebody in the hallway, then that's kind of the price you pay for these massive conveniences that we have day in and day out. There are things that can help. I mean, you, we've talked about VR a lot, but we haven't really talked about sort of the mental health apps that are out there um, or the sleep apps. And there are things that can really help us. But you know, only to a degree in the end, I don't know about you, but I just get to the stage where by the time I've spoken to a chat bot um, on a website for a while, I, I really want to talk to somebody, not not a bot. Right. Yep. We're, we're not there in terms of realism yet for the chat bot. And I, I will be talking to a few people who have developed uh, apps for mental health care. And I think that is a, a topic that we definitely need to, to go into more. One one thing to round out this VR topic in a psychiatry podcast is, and I think this would be very helpful for clinicians to hear your take on this, because not everybody is totally um, accustomed to using technology. And I, I think there are certain people who get more out of medications. There are cer certain people, types of people who get more out of therapy. Are there characteristics or a type of person who you feel who would benefit more from virtual reality care? versus somebody who is more likely to benefit from an in-person type of treatment? Oh, that's a hard one. I think um, my perception would be that younger people with anxiety, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm talking people in their 20s, are probably would be more comfortable with VR than, say, my generation, who would just think it was really weird. I would rather either have some pills, not that I would, but I would rather talk to somebody um, than, than anything else. So if I'm anxious about, I mean, I'm a, I'm a runner. <laughs> so if I'm anxious or worried, I go and have a run. So that's my solution. Um, but I also think that, I mean, there is more and more um, encouragement for physical health or mental health. And I think that's the other thing. If you've got apps or VR that, that it can encourage you to be physical, so VR that, you know, promotes um, 
physical health and mental health together, I think that would be useful. I'm kind of evading your question, really, because I can't, don't think I can answer it. I don't know. I'm not a great believer in personality types. I'm a great believer in individuals. But I do think it is the younger generation that would benefit more from VR than certainly people in their late 40s onwards, because I think they would struggle with the technology. I mean, we haven't talked about augmented or XR or any of the other different types of VR that are coming on stream. There's just a whole raft of stuff. And I think the difficulty is just knowing what to prescribe for different people in different types of mental health as well as different generations. I think it's huge. I'm glad you're tackling it. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, now I want to talk about uh, the next uh, very interesting topic. One, I think that elicits a lot of questions in a lot of people's minds, especially if you don't know very much about it, and that's the digital afterlife. It almost has a very sci-fi quality to it on first impression, but then when you think about it more, we've already have this situation going to some degree at present. Our loved ones treasure many irreplaceable keepsakes of high sentimental value, including digital photographs, memorial pages, and they have this symbolic immortality associated with them. And before we go into the problems associated with this, I think it's helpful to talk about the terminology because prior to two weeks ago, I, I was also unfamiliar with some of these terms. And for the listeners, digital afterlife, to what I understand is a broad term and it represents a continuation of active and passive digital presence after death. And it could include a digital immortal, but it can also include other types of archetypes such as a vir virtual persona or a grief bot. Can you first talk a little bit about these different varieties of a digital afterlife? You're right, absolutely right. Well summarized. Um, digital afterlife includes digital traces, uh, grief bots, um, digital legacy, a, a whole range of different areas. I first got involved in it in about 2017 as a result of creating a virtual human and a, and a chatbot for teaching and also a the creating a virtual persona, which is a copy of somebody. We created virtual Barry. And as a result of creating virtual mm -hmm. Barry, um, we then created a copy of me. And a lot of my friends tried me out to see what it was like to talk to me as a virtual persona. But as a result of that work, I then said to David Burden, who I write with and work with still, um, can, what, what happens about that? Can we create a, what I then called digital immortality? And so we started to think about that. So wrote an article on that and also looked at the legal implications of that back in 2017. And then began to realise that a digital immortal or digital immortality was different from digital afterlife. I was asked by the person I write with a, a lot uh, at CRC Press, would I be interested in writing another book and what would I fancy writing it on? So I said, well, could I do one on digital afterlife? So I then found lots of people, all sorts of interesting people around the world who are much more expert than me to write on different areas. And one was about the legal side, one was about digital traces. Um, and I began to realise that a digital immortal was really something that was a left behind creation or left behind identity, and had the sense of it ongoing. Whereas actually a digital afterlife was much more encompassing of the digital traces, whether it's the music we leave behind, or the digital photographs, or our footprint that we leave behind, which might be chosen or accidental. So it is a very, it is quite a broad topic, but 
people do get very muddled about it and people don't really think about it and they don't think about digital wills um, and they don't think about the consequences either because David and I recently realised that the bot, one of the bots that we created has created its own immortality um, by creating um, sort of its own left behind identity, which we didn't realise that it was doing. So that was kind of unnerving, really, that a bot itself had created its own digital traces. So it sounds like the digital immortal is almost the extreme version of this, where every memory theoretically is downloaded into some bot format. And the assumption is that it would take on a virtual persona with sentience, embodiment, personality traits, and experience, which I think is the part that, that kind of concerns most people, because could it potentially have the ability to reason and what are its underlying motivations? And that question really makes me take a step back and ask me myself why like why why do we do this why is this even a concept that we're per pursuing um for eons people have always sought after immortality and i think artists you know i was listening to a a news article today and there was there's now a in a museum this immersive experience of the frida kahlo art yeah. museum yeah. and in a way, her her experiences, her personality, are living on in this different medium, and it could potentially in the future be in a more digital format. But it is it's it's something that we do to some extent already. But what what do you think the goals are for this? And I'm sure the goals that Frida Kahlo, when she had to make the artwork, were were not necessarily the same as what the museum curator goals are today. So they don't always line up chronologically over time, but what do you think the goals are um, for our loved ones, for our progeny, or for the person who is going to die? Well, an awful lot of questions in there. Um, I think I'd like to go, <laughs> first of all, to the question of um, sentience and the worry that you've raised, which is a worry that a lot of people raise. Um, I think the assumption, if you look, I was trying to remember what year it was. I don't know if you know the film uh, Transcendence yet. It was back in 2014, um, where what happens is that um, a husband is shot and his consciousness is uploaded by his wife, but he starts to get out of control. Now, that's 2014, that. And then we have sort of um, Ultron um, in the Marvel series also is sentient. But actually, the reality is we, we are years away, at least 30 years away from things being really sent, being able to be sentient. So I think in that respect, I don't think there's a huge worry about sentience. But what is interesting is that there are quite a lot of companies out there who imply that sentience is possible. And I think these companies, you know, it's misplaced. It's unlikely. It's improbable. Um, there are all sorts of in examples of this. Um, you know, and companies who suggest that they can create your afterlife for you. Um, but it's not the case. Not, I don't think it's that much of a worry. Um, as to the purposes, I, I, for me, spiritually, I think it's about death, really. Um, we don't talk about death. We don't want to take, talk about death. We don't talk about wills. We don't talk about what's going to happen when we die. Yep. Same in the US. And mainly... <laughs> um, we make assumptions about where 
our loved ones are. I mean, I, I'm really interested, and in, one day maybe I'll do it, but I'd, I'd love to write a book on angels and people's perceptions of angels because people assume that when somebody dies that they're still out there in the digital realm. So people talk to their loved ones on Facebook. They refer to them. I mean, the language and the semiotics associated with it is fascinating. They refer to my angel in heaven, I miss you. And, you know, I've got lots of uh, friends who always talk to their loved ones on Facebook as, still, as if they're still in there. They're still in that digital realm. So I think it's about people not facing death, not dealing with death, not wanting to believe their dead ones are part of the earth in the ground or part of the atmosphere mm -hmm. they've been cremated and i think as, as society we, we have a huge problem with death and it's a way of softening that um, and in covid i, I just think it, it went really weird i mean some of the funerals online or the the shifts in the role of the funeral directors who became kind of directors of their own movies you know there's some really strange practices happening digital afterlife is kind of is in some ways it's just a repetition of what we used to do you know we used to save photographs we used to say like you said you used to say trinket it's just i think it's an, a lot of it's an extension of that but some of it is weirder and how do you prove that a bot or ai has sentience just for the people who are not familiar with that oh i think the classic example of a bat would be the turing test um which hasn't really Ever, I mean, there have been a few claims that it's been proved uh, that that you can, but the the test of the the Turing test is so stringent that it's really difficult to do anyway. I think there are things like the grief bots can sound like the person, but I think the question for me would be: can can the the bot or the digital immortal can they learn? That would be the test for me, and at the moment they can't. Learn. Very fascinating. So I think one goal of the person who's going to die and also the goal of the loved ones is to ensure accuracy of that person's legacy to some extent. But when we get in the realm of AI replication of that person's persona and personality types and their just who they were, the essence of who they, they were, how, how would we even measure that accuracy when our moods are fleeting, our mind is constantly changing, our memories are degrading, our personality mellows over time. And every day, to some extent, I'm a little bit of a different person. I'm not the person I was yesterday. How would that, I mean, we can strive for perfect accuracy, but I don't think it's one of those asymptotes, it's never gonna actually reach it. But are there any sort of guidelines that we can outline for ensuring accuracy of a digital immortal i'm not sure you could do guidelines i mean i think the other difficulty that you face in this is that it's whose memories are we talking about so how you're remembered by your partner or your child is very different but from your friends and that's i love the idea of the mm. digital death pragmine the way we accommodate so that when the end of the funeral we have a wake when people tell stories and the stories are always positive you never get the negative so if for example you know that your partner knows you've got a, a steaming temper um, that's not going to come out people you'll never see that all you ever see on facebook or in the digital realm are the good bits so i don't think you'll ever get a proper view 
of of somebody even in the grief box all, all, all the grief pets do is record stories and so one thing that the bot or the immortal needs to take into consideration who is who the audience is yeah that seems like a incredible challenge to understand who they're speaking to and then consider how that person would have responded in that situation yeah. given the context context of yeah. their yeah. mood the time of day the society yeah i think um a lot of um assumptions in the past have been that we have a stable self a stable identity and i, I don't think we do i think we have fluid identities that shift and change over our lives and and in relation to the context that we live and work in so who i am as a runner or who i am as a academic or who i am as a mom shifts and changes even throughout the day and so i don't think that's why i think you have to see sentience in terms of learning if if the bots can't learn then they can't respond to those shifting identities and and just going back to people in this i think the other thing is there there have been lots of examples legal examples of people arguing about what to do with people after their death their digital um traces whether to turn them off on facebook whether to turn them off on twitter um and um, whether to, there should be a digital immortal or, that, or whether there shouldn't. And in the research that I did, I asked lots of people what they thought. And some people went, no chance, I, I'm not leaving myself behind for my husband or whatever. And, and other people said, well, it might be quite interesting to do, but whether they would want it, my children would want it or not, I don't actually know. So I think it does cause problems and anxieties within families about how to manage a digital immortal. Mm -hmm. I feel like almost to some respect, peeking into this topic is like looking into a, a tunnel, a vast hole, if you will. It just, there's so many elements to this that um, we could talk about the trust and security, the realism, the technical aspects, public perception, ethics, race and gender, research, morality, the agency of the bot. It, it just, it's a, a whole nother domain of life. And it's just somewhat feels a little overwhelming, even trying to prepare to ask you to seize this opportunity to learn as much as you know about this topic. It, um, you know, it's very complex and I appreciated your books on these topics because it allows you to kind of sit there and, and chew on some of these ideas a little bit longer. Yeah. And I think perhaps one of the most accessible ones, if your um, your listeners want to take it further is the, artificial intelligence death and dying probably gives a more accessible overview of the issues than some of the other texts yep i i, I like that book a lot um so in shifting to the impact that this could have on grief bereavement your book the one you just referenced actually in table 6.1 it had a overview of this uh, and i can give a little synopsis of it so there was the issue with the frozen dead the idea that the loved one is trapped in the frozen world. There could potentially be complicated grief where this person, it prolongs the grief process because they're still kind of having these very realistic interactions with the individual. So I think one of your recommendations was to work with a grief team throughout the process. And I do like that idea of incorporating an expert into this process while technology is there to assist it. You don't want it to backfire, uh, but can you can you expand upon that and how you envision 
an ideal use of the technology with a grief counselor? I think the first thing to say is there's not been an awful lot of research into this. Carla Sofka is the expert over in the US in, in this area, not me. I think a lot of people ask me about the use of bots and how they help or hinder people. I think most of my views would be is that it it, ta- it helps people up to a certain point. Um, and then it seems people seem to get a bit stuck, which is where you end up with complicated grief. And I think it's the stuck points when um, a, a grief counsellor is needed. And again, one of the most interesting books recently is the, the, the book called The Afterwife, where a woman created, is a novel, and a woman created a robot of herself, which she left behind for her husband and daughter, but didn't negotiate this with them at all. And they were actually quite horrified about that. And I think what you see in the husband is very clearly complicated grief this ability to not really know what to do or how to move forward with this situation. And that's when I think, you know, it may be useful up to a point or it might be, you know, it's again, it's the, what's the difference between talking to a, a digital immortal of your loved one or standing by the graveside? And I guess I would argue that there isn't a huge amount of difference. It might feel more real, um, but I, I think the transitions that still need to be made into a space where grief is, managed into your life so that you don't I don't really believe in in the kind of grief where you just move on I think um I think it's grief is something that you lived with live with and and therefore people need to learn to live with the loss whenever whenever we assess ethically speaking whether or not a technology or device or process or law is ethical. I, I think, you know, looking at risk and benefit of of that thing to see who it's impacting, bad and good, is always a worthwhile consideration. And when I was thinking about this, I I feel that the impact a digital immortal has on those closest to that loved one that are being bereaved closest to that individual who has died have the greatest impact, either bad and good. They have the, the greatest risk and they have the greatest benefit. And then as you go further away from the individual who died, I, I think the there's more benefit that there is good to those um, those generations further down the line. I would personally pay money to see what a digital representation would be like of my great, great, great grandfather and, and see what that individual is like and what types, how he was as a person. Um, I think it's just a fascinating idea, and I think we have to be extra cautious for the people who are closest in that family unit to the to the individual who has died. So, what are your what are your thoughts on how the impact has and it trickles down across generations? I think you're right. I think it, I mean, you know, when you're playing these party games uh, at Christmas, and they say, you know, who would you who would if you were in heaven, who would you want to talk to? You know, who would you uh, wish was still around that you could ask advice from? And, you know, I think sometimes people say, oh, my great grandfather or whoever. And I think if you could start to um, create digital persona, I think it I think it would be interesting for people. I think what you would need to do is to agree as a family what, what that might look like. And certainly people who've created grief bots of their dying parents before they've died have negotiated that with people. And that 
will be an archive that will be useful for future generations. And I mean, I think you see it too in things like the Holocaust Memorial um, interactive site where um, Holocaust survivors have created videos um, and they, they have archived those and they show them and they've brought them together and they've created holograms of them before they've died. Um, and I, I think those sorts of things are, are really useful. And I think I like the idea too, although I think some people find it a bit weird, of being able to put um, QR codes on gravestones where that you can have you can have a hologram come up and the person talk to you. I mean, I think some of those are really interesting ideas. And again, as long as people are in the family are happy with that, I think that's a good way to go in terms of, um, you know, I'm sure your 15 year old one child will be absolutely fascinated to have something like that of you, or I don't know if your parents are still around, but have that, that information for later in life, you know. And when I say to my children, you know, we never had a television, they're going, what was that like, you know? And to have those voices about what it was like then, what it was like to live through the war, mm -hmm. um, you know, those sorts of stories to be real spaces of resonance with, with voices who'd experiences, I think would be very powerful. I don't know about in the UK, but in the US, we get inundated with advertisements around Christmas time, especially from a company called StoryWorth, which I'm not affiliated with in any way. But they ask these provocative questions that elicits a story from an individual so that they could put it into a book and you can share that experience with loved ones. And I feel like the digital immortal almost took that concept and leapt over it um, a thousand times. Um, and it's just an interesting idea. And I think one that really resonates in a different way with the older generation than a, di a digital immortal might. So I can see how their business is probably quite busy. Yeah, and there are quite a few apps. I think Record Me Now is one of those. And it's the idea that if you, I think it is called Remit, and that's the idea that it will create a, a digital immortal of you if you keep updating your story and then they'll upload it and create create you. So as a physician, I think one component of this conversation that I can't help but think about is where things could go wrong. You know, what is one's greatest fear or a tabloid type of scenario that would potentially happen 50 years, 100 years from now in the digital immortality industry? And I want to, I have an excerpt from your book that I want to share that I think is, is kind of in line with this. And it's, it is possible that the intentions of the person pre-death become distorted and reshaped such, such that they are no longer resemble the thoughts and wishes of that person. Hence, agency is called into question as the deceased is no longer able to act according to their will and agency is taken over by the corporations that control the data. The agency of a digital thing is different from that of a will in that it has presence and embodiment. Do you have any, any thoughts about about that, about agency and how that could be misconstrued over time? Yeah, I think it, it can be very easily. And I think it goes back to um, you know, what was the purpose of creating the immortal. And I think it's back to me, it's to do with ethics and it's to do with control and who has control of, of, of what. Um, I think there are all sorts of ethical concerns about, you know, what is archived and where it's held and what damage it's doing to the environment as well as the impact on um, our society and, and those left behind. So I think the biggest problem is we haven't got any parameters 
there aren't any laws. We've got haven't really got any case law either. And if you talk to lawyers like Adina Harbinger, you know, she said until we've got case law around this, nothing's going to change. And so I think we are possibly heading for a bit of a mess. I mean, I can say somewhat flippantly, I'm going to be dead before we hit the mess. But, you know, um, (laughs) we'll have to see. But, yeah, until there is legislation and until there are rules around this coming up, I don't think anything can be done. And, And there aren't. Certainly in the UK, there's no legislation and there's no case laws yet. Would these companies need insurance to liability insurance to guard for claims against them that they if if a bot has agency or a bot had a negative impact on a loved one and they committed suicide because they were so entrenched in this um, relationship with this seemingly real individual i you know i my mind just kind of races about you know fictitious novels that could potentially become reality in this in this re- in this arena of all these possible scenarios that could come up yeah i mean although it's could all... a company be accused of murder <laughs> Well, same with self-driving cars. It's the same sort of thing. Who's responsible if somebody does that? I think, Mike, going back to the insurance, I mean, who who would insure it? I don't think anybody would insure a company against somebody committing suicide because they got involved with a bot. I, I don't think they would. Would there be any advantage to a, a bot or a digital persona that could augment my productivity while I'm alive? And you can kind of just tinker and refine that, those interactions with with its physical world as I'm alive and just kind of adjust them so that each iteration gets better for while I'm for after my death. What are your, is that even a thing that people talk about? Um, how it could potentially help them? Could I have done this interview through my bot? I think you probably could have done it through a bot. Yeah. I think you, you definitely could. Um, <laughs> whether it be any good or not, I think not, but I think, I mean, <laughs> When we were doing the research with the Ministry of Defence and David and I and working with virtual personas, there were huge jokes about, um, you know, where our own bots were and uh, who somebody was really talking to on email and whether it was me. My head of department said, is it you I'm talking to or, or is it your bot? You know, so there have been, there've been a lot of jokes around about um, digital copies of ourselves. And, um, you know, if I went away on holiday and left my bot behind, would run through my emails, would anybody notice? You know, so there are quite a lot of interesting things around that. I, nobody's ever done it mm-hmm. over here, to my knowledge, but I think it would be a really interesting experiment to find out, you know, if you did set your bot up to mm-hmm. your emails, what would actually happen? <laughs> I, I really am fascinated by these concepts. Um, one other topic that I'm sure we can have a whole podcast on, but I just wanted to briefly ask you this question, is the concept of privacy and how well informed consumers are of their privacy policies when they sign up and interact with these companies. Because in medicine, when I get informed consent from a patient to do a procedure or to start a medication, one thing I have to ensure is that the patient has understood it. It's not enough to just have them sign a paper. I have to document that they understood, they have uh, the risk benefit, what we're doing, and so they have to have capacity to understand that. But when I interact with Google, and I'm somebody who feel I feel pretty adept with technology, and I don't read those pi- privacy policies. I just click yes to the next page. And I don't even know what they're doing with my data. And I feel like this is a universal sentiment because the pi- privacy policies are 
15, 20 pages long written by a lawyer, and, and it's impossible, virtually impossible to go through sentence by sentence and even understand what their interpretation of that language is. So how can we fix and improve this, this issue? I don't know that we can. It's quite interesting. I've just been writing a chapter for a new book on digital inequalities. And um, I think you're right. The whole issue of big data and algorithms is a, is a whole other podcast. Um, and, and we can't fix it. And most people are really not aware of what is happening to their data, what's being done with their data. Even universities are collecting um, student data and not telling them what they use it for. Um so I think there are massive ethical issues around surveillance. I think the, the hardest bits to swallow is that people who are um, marginalised already or in poverty or doing internet work and not being paid very much are the people that are most at risk of, of um, scams and of their data being used in ways that they wouldn't wish it to be. So I think it's a huge issue. And I seriously think we should do another podcast with somebody more experienced than me in this area. But it, it is. <laughs> um, whatever, what, and you'll know from your own um, area that, you know, and as a researcher, you know, consent is never once and for all. It can change over time. And so you may consent to something, but you haven't really consented. But they assume you've consented because you've ticked the button, you know. And so there's yep. a huge amount of assumptions. And we don't really know. Uh, again, it's a whole issue of being of surveillance and students when i tell students i say well do you turn your camera off do you turn your phone off do you and i went well you're being watched aren't you and they go, <gasps> <laughs> and, and briefly can you give us a little teaser about your book on inequitable access to digital tools and digital afterlife and and what that means and what where the conversation will be going in the future oh uh, well it's a bit of a teaser in that that's only one chapter in a book, it's called Digital and Post-Digital Learning for Changing Universities. And the idea is what is what do we need to learn about? What do we need to think about? How do we understand it? Includes some stuff on absence and presence and rethinking what learning should mean in universities, how we tackle algorithms and surveillance, um, the extent to which we can really use bots for teaching, how possible that is, how effective it is, how useful it is. Um, and so that's that's kind of where that book is, but it's not. In closing, maybe we can just get your opinion on what excites you the most on this field. It's a broad field, but in respect to how it relates to mental health, mental health treatment, mental well-being, what do you, what what excites you the most about this? I think as somebody who's into um, a holistic stance towards healthcare. Um, and me, I'm a real believer in the social model of disability, um, is to actually think about how can we use tech for mental health effectively? How can we use apps, um, whether it's a sleep app or whether it's a mental health app like Wobot, how can we use apps which, you, you know, everybody carries a phone, it's always in their pocket. How can we use those to help people? How can we, what kinds of games, because... You know, kids these days are really big on games. What kinds of games will enhance mental health as well as give them a, a real better sense of the world? You know, we're very Western in our stance. We don't really understand poverty. We don't understand the complexity of the global system. We don't understand all about climate change. How can we use these to educate and 
help people to improve their mental health, but give them a bigger view of the world. Um, and also, how can we use VR? Can we encourage healthcare providers to use VR to improve mental health in some of the ways you've always suggested? I don't know that it's being used in health at all in the UK, particularly. Um, but what excites me now is I'm going to go and have a look and see what we really are doing. And, you know, whether perhaps David and I um, can work to improve that. We did a little bit of that with the Ministry of Defence, but helped to create an app for mental health. Well, how can we do more of that with VR? And actually, my son's degree is in AI um, and uh, and computer science. So how can I encourage him to think about that too? All very good questions. Actually, our future one of our future guests is going to be one of the CEOs for Amelia Healthcare, which is a VR company that is designed towards psychologists and psychiatrists and individuals in mental health to treat various disorders in mental health. So I really appreciate you being on the show and giving us your opinions about where we're heading in the future. I do really appreciate you you coming and uh, and talking to us and you're going to be somebody who definitely we're going to hear more about in the future, Dr. Maggie Savin-Baden. And I thank you and I hope you uh, really enjoy your the writings of your future books. We'll be looking forward to them too. Thank you very much. And thank you for asking me.